All right. How's everybody doing? Good? Good. Okay, we're going to go ahead and get rolling. I think we'll probably have some people trickle in, but that's okay. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be together. We thank you that you're a God who speaks, a God who is engaged with his creation and continues to be. We thank you for giving us your word, for speaking to us clearly in a way that was necessary for us to hear from you, to know how to have life in you and how to have salvation and freedom from sin. We thank you that you have given us your word, and we confess our need to hear from you and to hear correctly, to know how to live. And so we pray that you would bless our time this afternoon as we continue to try to learn how to be faithful in handling your word. We pray that you'd give us wisdom and discretion, discernment. We pray that we would grow in this, not for the sake of knowledge or skill, but for the sake of knowing you more deeply and loving you more wholly and making your love known to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, welcome back. Um, As you can see up on the slide, we are going to be looking at a couple of specific genres today, the genre of the New Testament Gospels and the genre of New Testament letters. But... Before we jump in, it's been a couple of weeks since we were together, so I want to go back two weeks and just review some of the high points from two weeks ago, refresh our memory before we jump in. So if you were here two weeks ago, you'll remember that we talked about six core theological beliefs when it comes to the Word of God. We had an acronym, right? Does anybody remember the acronym? N-C-I-S-I-A, great. Okay, so let's walk through it. What's the N stand for? Necessity. And what's that mean? It's needed, good. Okay, the C? Clarity, okay. And what's clarity mean, the clarity of Scripture? We can understand it. It's clear. There's no secret code. There's no uh, mystical secrets to understanding the Bible. God has made it clear to us, okay? The I, inspiration, okay, what does it mean that the Word of God is inspired? All Scripture is breathed out by God, and we believe that inspiration goes down to the very Word, right, in the original autographs. The S, N-C-I-S, what's the S? Sufficient, okay, what do we mean when we say the Word of God is Sufficient. Nothing extra is needed. It tells us everything that we need to know in order to to know God and to have salvation and to know what it means to follow him. Okay, the the next I, inerrancy, okay? And by inerrancy we mean no contradictions, right? It's consistent within itself. There's no mixture of air within it. Everything that it claims is true. And the A, Authoritative, which means it has authority, right? (laughs) It's in charge. It's the final word, right? We submit ourselves to the word of God. We don't try to interpose our ideas upon it. Okay, so there are your six core theological beliefs. Now, you'll remember we had a discussion also, and we had a couple of different phrases when it came to interpreting the text. One of them was reader response, and one of them was authorial intention. So when we, we talked about reader response as an approach to interpreting the scriptures, what, was, what were we talking about? What's a reader response? Do you remember? What it means to me. So in the reader response perspective of interpretation, the locus of interpretation resides with the reader. The reader determines what the text is saying to them. And the other is authorial intention, which is? What the author intended to communicate is where the meaning of the text resides. Good. Okay, and then we finish. This one might be the trickiest one. We finish by talking about pre-understanding, right? The, one of the major barriers to 
understanding the Word of God and interpreting it is pre-understanding. Pre-understanding are these ideas that already exist within us because of things like our, our culture, our family, our, uh, the system of beliefs we have. So anybody remember specific, we talked about four, four specific types of pre-understanding you remember we talked about? Familiarity, which is? Right. Right. So tonight, this afternoon, we're going to look at um, the parable of the Good Samaritan. How many of you have read that? Probably dozens, hundreds of times. Okay, so one of the things we're going to have to be aware of is the pre-understanding of familiarity. We think, I've read this a hundred times. There's nothing new to be learned. I know what this is about. Okay? Another form of pre-understanding? Agenda, some type of agenda. Okay, could be a theological agenda, philosophical agenda, social agenda. We have to be careful not to let these pre-existing agendas we have infiltrate our interpretation of the scripture. We need to let the scripture speak to, to our pre-understanding. There's two more. I heard one of them, Sandia. Family, family background, right? So even if you grew up in a Christian home, you may have adopted values, beliefs, philosophies about life that you kind of assume these are Christian ideas, philosophies, beliefs, because I grew up in a Christian family and this is what my parents taught me or this is what my family did, right? Well, we have to be careful because as we all know, uh, we have a way of mixing what is true and right and, and believing that and then living in a different way, right? So we've got to be careful of just assuming the way our, our family did things is a biblical way of doing things. And the last one, it's a big one, culture, okay? So we just live and breathe our culture. And so many of our cultural beliefs are just assumed, right? We don't even think, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm adopting this belief. It just is a part of the air we breathe, and so often we can just come to believe it and accept it because it's the culture we've grown up in. So we have to be aware of those types of pre-understanding. Okay, great. Good job. You remembered from two weeks ago. That's good. So, like I mentioned, uh, we are going to talk about a couple of different genres specifically this afternoon, the Gospels and the letters, and we're going to walk through that five-step process that we talked about at the very end. We just kind of flew through it, but it's Duval's and, Duval and Hayes have this five-step process called the interpretive journey. And so we're going to begin today, and we're going to do it over the next three weeks, practicing this interpretive journey as we look at specific passages and work through them together. Before we jump in, though, I do want to talk about, I've mentioned we're going to look at a couple of different genres. I do want to talk about genre from a, from a big perspective before we start looking specifically at particular genres. Genre is an important thing to keep in mind as we attempt to interpret the scriptures. Now, genre is a general term that refers to different forms, kinds, and categories of literature. So, if you were going to go to the public library, the nice new library downtown, you would walk in and you would find different sections of the library. You would find a science fiction section. You would find a historical fiction, fiction section. You would find a section on poetry. You would find uh, newspapers and old news articles. You would find textbooks. You would find pop culture magazines. And every one of those different categories represents a different genre. Now, here is what we have learned just by experience, that you read and interpret different genre in different ways, right? So we naturally and intuitively use a different set of rules when we sit down to read and interpret the newspaper than we would if we were going to sit down and read and interpret a sci-fi novel, because we know that the genres are different. And this consideration of genre carries over to our reading of scripture, the Bible contains many different genres, narrative history, law, poetry, prophecy, wisdom, gospel, epistle or letter, and apocalyptic writings. And each of these different biblical genres has a slightly different set of rules that are going to govern how we interpret them. And we need to be aware of them and talk about them or we risk misinterpreting a passage. So we're going to look at first some principles for interpreting the genre of New Testament Gospels. Here's the thing to remember about Gospels. Gospel, the Gospel accounts are stories of Jesus 
that are drawn from the personal experience of the apostles. And the editors of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, compiled eyewitness testimonies of Jesus, and then they put them together to tell their audiences something important about Jesus. Now, you're probably familiar with this, but if you sit down and read through the Gospels and compare them, you'll discover that sometimes the Gospel writers tell the, the same stories, give the same details, and they're somewhat organized, and then at other times you'll realize, well, John included this story, but Matthew and Mark and Luke didn't say anything about it. Or you'll realize that they put, they've told the same stories, but they've arranged them differently. Or one of them will include a different detail that the other author didn't include. And what you need to know is that this was done on purpose. That the editors of the Gospels attempted to communicate to the audience, not just through the stories that they were telling, but also how they were putting those stories together in their narrative. So the Gospels give us four different portraits of the same Jesus. And there's a great book. Uh, it's, a, it's a thick one, but it's called Four Portraits, One Jesus. Mark Strauss wrote it, and he does a great job of telling you, here's the Gospel of Mark. Here's, here are the themes in the Gospel of Mark. Here's how Mark is different, or it contrasts, or it, it gives um, perspective to, to Matthew and Luke. And here's how John's different. So, so we know that the four different gospel writers were giving us slightly different stories or sometimes the same story in different order for a specific purpose of communicating certain themes or to certain audiences. So if we were going to summarize the genre of gospels, we could call them Christological biographies. Okay, Christological biographies. They're biographies because they attempt to tell us about the historical life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And they're Christological because they're also written with the express purpose of revealing that Jesus was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. So they were intended to communicate history, and they do, but they were also intended to communicate theology, right? And those two things are woven together in the Gospels. So, that's the big picture of what of the genre of gospel. Now let's talk about some specific principles to keep in mind as we look at New Testament gospel passages. The first is to keep in mind the special literary forms within the gospel. So you have this genre of gospel, but then as you're reading through the gospels, you'll realize that there are actually subgenres. Within the Gospels, you'll find things like hyperbole, which is an, a use of an exaggeration to make a point. You will use lots of, of imagery, simile, metaphor. You'll see irony. You'll see Jesus ask rhetorical questions. I think it's fascinating. If you look through the four Gospels, you will find that Jesus asked just under 300 questions in the four Gospels. So for every chapter of the Gospel, of a Gospel you read, on average you will find three questions. Jesus loved to use questions. Often they were rhetorical questions, and he loved that to get us thinking and to make his point. You will find parables, which is what we're going to look at this afternoon. In parables, we have to think differently about parables than we do about other portions of the gospel. So that's the first thing is, is even within the gospels, keep in mind what special literary form you're looking at. The second is find the meaning in the individual story. So anytime you're reading through the gospels or any of the narrative of scripture, it's important to ask the, the basic questions that we all learn to ask anytime we're thinking about a story. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. And often we will be able to learn as we just simply answer those questions. And sometimes the editor of the gospel will even give us clues at the beginning or the end of the story about what he's wanting us to learn. So keep an eye out for that as well. And the third principle for reading gospels is look for the meaning communicated by the way stories are connected to each other. So as I mentioned, remember, that the gospel writers were not just trying to communicate to us through individual stories, they were also trying to communicate something to us by the way that they put those stories together. So look for themes, look for patterns, repetition, logical connections as you read through the gospels. 
Okay, so we've talked about genre. We've talked about the genre of gospel, specifically what it is, some principles for interpretation. And now, this afternoon, because we are going to look at a parable, I want to talk about even more principles for thinking about parables because they are a unique genre within the gospels. So let's talk about some principles for interpreting parables specifically. Parables are stories with two levels of meaning where certain details in the story represent something else. Now, the challenge of interpreting parables is knowing which components of the story are intended to represent something else and what exactly they represent. So sometimes Jesus or the editor of the Gospels will tell us, right? Jesus, you'll, you'll notice him do this. He'll tell the, a parable to the crowds and then he'll go away with his disciples and say, okay, here's what this means, right? So he lets us in so that we can understand what some of his parables are about. But for some of them, he doesn't come right out and say, and we've got to do the work of digging out the meaning. So here are two principles for studying parables specifically. The first is look for one main point for each main character or group of characters, So one main point is usually what Jesus was after when he was telling a parable. So if we're we're saying, you know, here's the parable and Jesus meant this and this and this and this, we'll see an example of that in just a minute, then we're probably off track. Jesus usually is just wanting us to get one main point out of a parable. Maybe there's a secondary point as well. Second principle is the main points that you surmise from the parable must be ones that Jesus' original audience would have understood. Now, this really applies to our interpretation of all of Scripture. If we're, if we're going, if the interpretation we're coming up with is something that the original audience never would have been able to fathom, then we need, probably need to go back and check whether we've done our work correctly. So, again, we're trying to understand this within context. How would Jesus' original audience have understood this parable? So those are a couple principles for parables specifically, and now we're going to practice Together, okay, so I gave you a handout. Anybody missed the handout? Matt, would you mind just handing these out for me? Thanks. Okay, so we're going to practice this afternoon. We're going to look, look at uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan in the Gospel of Luke. So it's in Luke 10, 29 through 37, and I've supplied it there on the, the worksheet that I handed out. You're, you can look it up as well. And uh, you can also look up on the screen. I'm going to throw it up there as well. So I I just want us to to read the passage first, and then we're going to walk through the interpretive journey together. So let's start by just looking at this passage. Here it is. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds. Pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. So, before we jump into the interpretive journey, let me just give you one interpretation of this parable. This is an interpretation from Augustine. Augustine was an early church father from the 4th century, and he gave a rather famous allegorical interpretation of this parable. Now, an allegory is a long metaphor in which almost every detail of the story carries some sense of greater meaning or significance. And from the 4th century till the time of the Reformation, allegory was a popular and accepted approach for interpreting the Bible, and it was widely used. So let me just show you how an allegorical approach to Scripture 
would play out with a passage like this. Here's Augustine's interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Everything has a point. Here's, here's the point that Augustine draws from each component of this parable. He says that the Jewish man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho represents Adam, the first man. That Jerusalem represents the heavenly presence of God from which Adam fell. That Jericho represents our mortality. That the robbers represent the devil and his angels. That being stripped and beaten represents being persuaded to sin and stripped of immortality. That being left half dead represents the state of fallen man in which insofar as he can understand and know God, he lives, but in as far as insofar as he is wasted and oppressed by sin, he is dead, that the priest and the Levite who pass by represent the ministry of the Old Testament, that the Good Samaritan represents Jesus, that the binding of the wounds represents the restraint of sin, that oil represents the comfort of good hope, that wine represents the exhortation to work with fervent spirit, that the animal on which the beaten man was set represents the flesh in which Jesus came to us, that being set upon the beast represents faith, in the incarnation of Christ, that the inn represents the church, that the next day represents the resurrection, that the two denarii represents the promise of this life and then the promise of the life which is to come, that the innkeeper is the apostle Paul and that the promise of repayment is Paul's counsel of celibacy. Okay. So there you have one of our great early church fathers, widely respected, well-written, with a very confusing but spiritual-sounding interpretation of this parable. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to work through this parable together, and then we're going to come back and talk about Augustine's interpretation and think about where Augustine got off track. So, We're going to look at this image again. Remember, we just flew through this really quickly last week, but now we're going to go back and break it down step by step. This is Duval and Hayes' interpretive journey, five steps that they use to interpret any specific passage. So step one is grasping the text in their town. You'll see over there on the left side you have a, a representation of an ancient town which would represent the context into which these biblical texts were written. And so the goal of step one is to go back into the ancient context and try to understand what this text meant in their town. So there's the big question there at the top. What did the text mean to the biblical audience? Now, this step, there are going to be a few questions we want to ask and answer. You see them there. What is the genre of the passage? What do we know? What is the genre of the passage? It's a parable within the Gospels, right? And what are some guiding principles for this genre? We talked about a couple of them. One main point I heard. Right, we're looking for one main point within the story and the main point has to be one that Jesus' original audience would have understood. Right? Those are principles for parables. Next question. Where does this passage fit within the large overarching story of the Bible? Are we in the Old Covenant? Are we in the New Covenant? Yeah, the New Covenant is being established right as we speak. Okay, so here's probably the most important thing. You're trying to get a a basic framework for those three questions. And then here's probably the most important step. It's in bold there. Read and observe the text carefully. Okay, this is where we have to go back and we have to say, hey, pre-understanding of familiarity, you're not going to pass this time. Okay, we're going to slow down. We're going to really dig in and look at this and make sure we understand what it means. So, before we do that, let me just give you... uh, a few things to look for as you go back and do this digging. I'll give you three of them. Three clues to meaning. Before you go back and read, the first one is comparison and contrast. So these are specific clues that are going to be helpful in this passage, but anytime you're reading through a passage, these clues to meaning, you want to look for them because they're really important in identifying what the original author was trying to say. So, 
Comparison and contrast is one of the consistent tools you'll see biblical authors use to try to communicate their point. And often, they're trying to compare two things to show how either they're both bad or they're both good or how one is bad and one is good. So for example, James compares the unbridled tongue to a rudderless ship, right? Bad and bad. Or he commits the, uh, compares the unbridled tongue with fire that sets a whole person's life on fire, right? Bad and bad. Sometimes they will contrast how one thing is bad and the other is good. So if you read 1 John, John talks a lot about light and darkness, light and darkness, light and darkness. Jesus is light. Darkness is in the world. Okay, so they're often using comparison and contrast to help you get the main point. That's one thing to look for. The second thing to look for is repetition of words. Anytime you see a word or a set of words used repeated number of times within a passage or within a book of scripture, that's an early clue to the emphasis of the passage or the book. For example, first 11 verses of John 15, we find the word abide 10 times. 10 times in 11 verses, John says abide. What do you think the main point of that passage is? It's about abiding, right? John is telling us by not telling us, he just by saying the word over and over and over. He doesn't even need to say this is the point. He's telling us by the way he uses the word so many times. So that's the th- second thing to look for. And the third thing is to look for commands. Commands often point us to the meaning of Scripture as well. So in Matthew 6, 25 through 34, listen to the commands Jesus gives. Do not be anxious about your life. Do not be anxious about your life. Do not be anxious about your life. Lastly, seek first the kingdom of his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Right? So pretty much just by looking at the commands, you're going to get the main point of Jesus' teaching there. Okay, so keep these in mind. Now I'm going to give you some time. You've got the passage there in front of you. If you have a pen, you can use a pen, mark it up, circle, underline, whatever you want to do. If you don't have a pen and you want one, there's one up here you can grab. I'm going to give you 10 minutes to work through this passage. You can do it by yourself. You can do it with your neighbor. And just try to get to the original meaning. What is the point that Jesus was trying to communicate? And and let me give you this word, okay? We are not trying to interpret the passage yet. We are just trying to figure out how would a first century Jew have understood this? Okay, we're not yet trying to get to what, did the passage, what does the passage mean. We're just trying to, to identify what did the passage say. So we're like putting on our Sherlock Holmes hat and we're just going to investigate, right? What was Jesus trying to communicate? Any questions before I release you to do that? Okay, I'll give you a little bit of time and then we'll come back together and discuss. All right. So let's talk about it. Let's just talk about these these three clues to meaning, specifically. Anybody identify any comparison and contrast? What comparison and contrast do we see? Luke? Luke? Okay. Okay. Good. <clears throat> what about repetition of words? Anybody see any repeated words there? What's that? Passed by on the other side. Okay. Saw him. Neighbors. What's that? Okay. Robbers? Okay. On the other side, yeah. All right, what about commands? What commands do you see? Go and do likewise. So there's two of them there, right? Go and do. How many of you, as you were reading through this, anybody think, I have a question about that. 
Maybe there's something here missing and I need some more information or I'm curious about something. Claire? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, the, the big question I'd be asking is, who's the he? Right? Verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who's the he? Right, there's something we're missing. Something happened before this. That might be important for us to understand what the meaning is. So, so one of the things to do here is just be curious, right? Put on your detective hat. Be curious, right? If there are missing details or pieces, ask, what am I missing here that's, gonna, that's important for me to really make sure I'm understanding this correctly? So Claire already hit on it, but one of the big things that you're going to want to think about anytime you interpret a passage, there are two things. We're going to talk about two different kinds of context. The first one we're going to talk about is literary context, right? So we're going to press on with the journey in just a minute, but we need to pause here and talk about a couple different kinds of context. The first is literary context. Now, literary context relates to the particular form a passage takes, which is the genre, right? We talked about that already. But it also relates to the words, sentences, and paragraphs that surround a given passage, so we've already, we already identified the genre, this is New Testament gospel, it's parable, but we need to look at the surrounding context as well. So the surrounding context refers to the texts that surround the passage you're studying. This includes the words, sentences, paragraphs, and discourses that both come before the text you're looking at and what follows after the text you're looking at. And this can range anywhere from just the few paragraphs before to sometimes you're going to need to read multiple chapters, right? The, the literary context of a given passage could be multiple chapters, and you'll see that especially in like Old Testament uh, narrative, right? Something may happen to Moses, and it's, it's a fulfillment of something that happened several chapters before. So especially as you're looking at narrative, you're going to need to look wider as you look at surrounding context. Here's an important image to keep in mind as we think about literary context. It's this idea that we give the immediate context the greatest weight in shaping the interpretation of our passage. So we're going to talk about later consulting the biblical map, which we're, we're going to ask not just how does the immediate context shape what we're trying to understand, but how does the Bible in general help us understand this, right? So there's levels of literary context. There's the immediate stuff that's right around it all the way out to the rest of the Bible. But anytime we're looking at literary context specifically, we're going to give the most weight to the stuff that is right around that passage, right before it and right after it. So... Let's now look at the literary context of this passage. Let's look at what comes before. This is what Claire was talking about. Verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Right? So this is what comes before this parable of the Good Samaritan. And it helps us understand the point that Jesus is trying to make here, isn't it? Doesn't it? So we can't divorce Jesus' parable here from the conversation that he has just had with the lawyer because he's telling the parable to answer the lawyer's question. So we have to look back and see what's the question that Jesus is answering here. That's going to help us identify his meaning. Okay, now let's look what comes right after in verses 38 through 41. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching but Martha was distracted with much serving and she went up to him and said Lord do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone tell her then to help me but the Lord answered her Martha Martha you're anxious and troubled about many things but one thing is necessary Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her so 
we're seeing the connection here between the parable that Jesus is teaching and the teachings that are coming right before it and after it. And sometimes these connections be really clear and sometimes they may not be as clear. But if you find a good commentary, often the author will help you see the connection. So here's a, a commentary series I like. It's the NIV application commentary. And I like it because they follow this process, right? They have, different, they have three different sections for each passage. It's grasping the text, building a bridge, here's what it means to us. So if you turn that paper over, I have pulled some information out of this commentary for you. So at the top, you will find literary context. This is what Daryl Bach says in this commentary. He says, discipleship is one of Luke's most important themes, Luke 10, 25 through 11, 13 focuses on this issue by highlighting relationships at three fundamental levels with one's neighbor, which is the passage we looked at, with Jesus, that's Mary and Martha, and before God through prayer. The close juxtaposition of these relationships suggests the vertical, horizontal aspects of spirituality. Ethics is not a matter of abstract reflection on certain situations. It is a reflection of character that combines listening to God with sensitive service to people. Okay, so that helps us see the connection between the parable and what comes before it and after it. And sometimes, like I said, these are pretty clear and sometimes you might need a commentary to help you or if it's not really clear, you can assume that there's not a whole lot of meaning that you need to derive from the immediate context. So that's literary context. We want to keep that in mind as we're going to move toward synthesizing this down into a principle for interpretation. So we want to keep the, the literary context in mind. The second thing I want to talk to you about is the historical cultural context. So God has given us these eternal principles in his word these principles that apply to every person of every age and every culture, but he chose to give those principles to us by speaking to the real-life needs of a particular people in a particular place at a particular time and in a particular culture. So in order to properly understand the meaning of these eternal truths for us today, we must first understand what they meant in the historical cultural context in which they were given. Now, generally, when we talk about historical cultural context, there are three big components. The first is a collection of half-breeds. The name came from the capital of the separatist northern kingdom of Israel, Samaria, in a rule founded by Omri. The Samaritans intermarried with the pagan nations and were thus seen as unfaithful to the nation of Israel. This is what Bach says about the lawyer's question. An ancient Jewish book of wisdom, Sirach, tells its readers not to not help a sinner. Thus, the lawyer's question is really an attempt to create a distinction, arguing that some people are neighbors and others are not, and that one's responsibility is only to love God's people. The suggestion that some people are non-neighbors is what Jesus responds to in his story. Jesus picks a Samaritan as the highlight of the story because such a person is a non-neighbor in the lawyer's eyes. The expectations in the account are that the priest and the Levite are the good guys who could be expected to help the wounded traveler, but a Samaritan as a half-breed and renegade would be the last person from whom one could expect compassion. And this is what Bach has to say about the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. He says, Jesus picks the treacherous road from Jericho to Jerusalem as the site of the incident. This 17-mile journey was well known for its danger. The cultural equivalent today might be a trip through parts of the inner city in the middle of the night. This road was hazardous, as the man who falls among robbers finds out. Thieves took advantage of the caves that lined the road as it wound through the desert, jumping travelers as they passed through. So this man is stripped of his clothing, beaten, and robbed. So do you see how this information helps us get to the meaning here? Knowing what, is, what was the relationship like between the Jews and the Samaritans? What was at the heart of the question this lawyer was asking? Even just, some, just an image of what this road might have been like starts to add some depth to our understanding of this parable. So this understanding this context is, is important, the historical cultural context. So you have this information. Now here's the end of step one. Step one ends by synthesizing the original meaning of the passage 
into one or two sentences. So I want to give you a chance to do that in just a couple minutes on your own or with somebody right beside you. I want you to synthesize the meaning of this parable into one or two sentences. And I want you to write it as if, I want you to imagine you were a first century Jew and you were telling your first century Jewish friend what Jesus said. So I want you to write it. Remember, we're not doing application yet. We're still doing meaning. What does this mean? All right. Anybody want to share? Ooh, might take some courage. I promise we won't deem you a, a, a heretic or something like that if you're way off. I promise. We're learning together. Sandy? Great. Good. Yeah, those are all great. Here's mine, and I'll remind you that mine is not inspired, so uh, this is what I had. Jesus claimed that God's ancient command to love one's neighbor as oneself was less about good Jews loving the other good Jews who live next door and more about having a heart of mercy and compassion toward all people, regardless of their social, demographic, or religious background. All right, so that's my one or two word principle. Sandy, thank you for being courageous. You get a commentary on Matthew. <laughs> All right. So there's our principle. That's where step one ends. We're coming up with this principle. The rest of it will move a little quicker. So here's step two. Step two is measuring the width of the river of differences. So you see number two there is a river. And the words you see in that river are culture, language, time, and situation. So here you just want to acknowledge some of the similarities and differences between our town and their town. So anybody want to think of some things that are different between our town and their town? Okay. Okay. Yep. So laws regarding what would be clean and unclean Touching blood would make you unclean, so maybe a reason the priest and the Levite avoided. Any, just think big picture here. How many of you speak Greek? I don't. I speak English. How many of you live in the first century? Yeah, me neither. Right? How many of you live in the Middle East? How many of you have been on this road from Jerusalem to Jericho? Sherry sure has, okay. How many of you grew up a Jew? Anybody? No? Okay. So if you grew up a Jew, you're going to be very familiar with Jewish laws, Jewish culture, right? So we're coming from a different background. Okay, what things might be similar between us and the original audience? Big picture. Prejudices, yeah. We'll come across people who are in need, yep. Yeah. yeah, we want to know what we do, have to do. What do we need to do to clear the bar? And on top of that, we tend to want to believe that we are doing enough to clear the bar, right? We want to be like the lawyer. Yeah, I do that. I'm good. Right? So we're seeing some similarities and we're seeing some differences there. Okay, I don't want to get too far into the weeds here. This is just making sure you're acknowledging how are we similar and how are we different. So that's going to help you with step three, which is crossing the principalizing bridge. So here's the big question. What is the theological principle in this text? We've already kind of identified this principle, right? We've talked about it. There are there on the slide some things to keep in mind as you're coming up with your principle. It should be reflected in the text, right? What we're coming up with needs to be there right in front of us. It should be timeless and not tied to a specific situation. It should not be culturally bound. It should correspond to the teaching of the rest of Scripture, and it should be relevant to both the biblical and the contemporary audience. So just as you're doing this on your own, you're coming up with principles, those are some tests for your principle just to make sure you're coming up with a sound principle. 
So our principal then is going to become the bridge that connects their town to our town. Okay, so, so we've, we talked about some of our principles. The principal is going to be the principalizing bridge that bridges from their town to our town. So then we go to step four. Step four is consulting the biblical map. So you'll see maybe there, there's a little guy who just crossed the bridge and he's looking at that map by number four. So the question is here, here is, how does our theological principle fit with the rest of the Bible? Remember, we talked last week about how the same God who is logical, who is, does not contradict himself, does not change, spoke the whole Bible. Therefore, the Bible is not going to contradict itself. So we're going to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So what that means for us here is we've come up with our principle, we've, we've attempted to cross the bridge, but when we get to the other side, the process that we need to go through is now zooming out and thinking about what does the rest of the Bible have to say. If the, the Bible has clear teaching that contradicts our principle, then our principle is wrong because the Bible doesn't contradict itself. If, as we look at what the rest of the Bible is saying about this issue, we find supportive evidence then that's a good sign that we're on the right track, right? Because the, the Bible is going to affirm itself, not contradict itself. So I want to give you just a couple minutes here to think about those two questions. Is this teaching consistent with the rest of Scripture? And do other portions of Scripture add insight or qualification to this principle? So I want you to think, what, it, what other parts of the Bible do you know that speak to this, this matter of loving your neighbor, of loving someone who's different from you, of putting faith into action? So I'll give you a couple minutes. If you think of a, a passage comes to mind, write it down. If you think of something you think, maybe this adds qualification to what Jesus says here. Well, in this other place, Jesus said this thing. So how do we work these things together? I'll give you a couple minutes. Just think about what are the other places the Bible speaks to this and affirms it or maybe qualifies this in some way. Okay, I know that wasn't a ton of time, but we need to press on for the sake of time. Anybody think of any passages that would reaffirm the principle that we came up with? Maureen? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your Matthew 22. Jesus had an encounter with a Samaritan woman himself, right? Probably learned some things about that. What about qualifications? Anything you thought of in the Bible that you're like, maybe this qualifies what Jesus is saying in some way. Maybe there's some nuance here. Yeah, so, so here are a couple qualifications that, I'm, that I thought of as I'm... Uh, just kind of pondering over this. Um, here's a question. What if, they're, what if my neighbor is sinful, violent, and destructive? So some things I would think of here are um, Romans 13, where Paul talks about the justice of the government. The role of government is to execute justice against sinful, violent, destructive people that God will ultimately have vengeance against sinful, violent, destructive people. I think also of, of Matthew 18, where Jesus says, if there's someone within the church who is in ongoing persistent sin, what love looks like is to warn them, warn them, warn them, and move them out of the church, right? So, the, so there's, some, there's some balance here in that loving your neighbor as yourself is qualified by these other things that Jesus is saying. Jesus says in, in Matthew 7, don't throw your pearls before swine. Right? So, so now we're kind of weighing all of this evidence that Jesus is saying. And we're saying, do we need to reword our principle at all? Do we need to add a qualification to it? Is it okay as it is? And this is our opportunity to reword our principle if we want to after we've thought about uh, some, of these, some of the places that the rest of the Bible speaks to this. So here's one thing that, that we might qualify it with. We might say, Jesus commanded that we show mercy and compassion to all people, even those who might be considered religious or cultural enemies, and even when it's costly. This does not preclude us from using wise biblical judgment in choosing how 
to respond to sinful, violent, or destructive people. Okay, that's, that, that would be one th- way that I would qualify it. Okay? And the thing that I would say is that even if you're going to take those actions, you better be aware of your heart, right? Because what Jesus is really getting at in this parable is, is yes, what you're doing, but also what's in your heart. Because you're doing out of what's in your heart, right? So sometimes loving someone uh, might be also challenging them, right? And the rest of the Bible speaks to that too. Okay, so now we're in step five as we wrap things up here, grasping the text in our town. This is application. How should the individual Christian today live out this theological principle? So you'll see up there, while there will usually be only a few and often only one theological principle in a single passage that is relevant for all Christians today, there will be numerous applications of that principle in the lives of people. So this is where our principle, you'll see on the map there, the guy who's at the map, there are multiple roads after the map, right? Which is a sign that there are multiple applications. We've got a principle, and now there could be a different application of that principle for each of us based on the people that God has put in our lives. So here's where this principle, the rubber meets the road, right? Think about political opponents today. Think about Muslims. Think about the LGBTQ plus community. Think about family members, maybe family members who have have harmed you. Right? We start finding application in all these different scenarios in our lives today. This is where there's multiple applications for the same principle. Okay. I want to wrap things up here pretty quickly, but I want to come back to this. So we came up with this principle, very different from what Augustine came up with. So where did Augustine go wrong? What would you say? Clarity? He started in his town. Yeah. Started in his town. Yeah. Yeah, not, not having the framework of there's one meaning for a parable, right? Which goes back to his kind of allegorical approach. Yeah. Yeah, you could say he started with the context of the Bible and worked toward the immediate context as opposed to going the other way. Right. Yeah. So no Jew who would have heard Jesus saying those words in the moment would have had any idea of Paul's teaching about celibacy, right? So we automatically go, well, Augustine must have been off here because Jesus' original audience wouldn't have had any idea of what he was talking about. Okay, so the point here is that sometimes you might hear interpretations of Scripture that sound spiritual, but we have to remember that the spiritual meaning of Scripture is bound up in the literary meaning. Okay, so, so I will say this. One of the dangers is we turn script, we, we kind of eliminate the spiritual nature of Scripture. Uh, this is my textbook, and I dissect it with my principles, and I've studied it, and I've mastered it, right? No, it's a spiritual book. It's living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, right? So we can't lose sight of that, that it is spiritual, but, but we have to remember the spiritual meaning is bound up in the literary meaning. It can't mean something that the author never meant it to mean. Okay, so what I want to do is just give you the principles for New Testament letters real quick. We're not going to do any exercises for it. I'm just going to give you the principles, and then I'll give you a chance to ask a few questions before we wrap up here. So we're shifting to the genre of New Testament letters. Let's just, I'll give you a few things here. So letters were widely used in the ancient world, and they were widely used in the church. So 21 of the 27 New Testament books are letters. Some ancient letters were informal, private letters between friends or family members that were meant to be read only by the person to whom they were addressed in the ancient world, but some of them were formal 
artistic, rhetorical letters that were designed for public presentation. And the New Testament letters fall somewhere in the middle, right? We find some letters like Philemon, which are very personal, right? From one person to another person. Then we find other letters that were from, from say, Paul to a church. And then he says, circulate this letter among the churches. So they kind of fall on a spectrum. Some of them are more personal. Some of them are for groups of people. Things to be aware of as you look at a New Testament letter is that most of them follow a three-part structure where you'll find the, the brief introduction, which usually includes the name of the author, the name of the recipient, a greeting, and an introductory prayer. So anytime you're trying to get the literary context of a letter, the best place to go is the very beginning. Often it will tell you, this is who wrote it, here's who he was writing to. The second part's the body. And that's where the letter, uh, where the author gives situation-specific instruction, persuasion, rebuke, exhortation to the audience. And the body is generally the largest portion of the letter. And then most of them will end with some type of conclusion. And the conclusion might involve several different things. It may have a prayer, may have prayer requests, final instructions, a benediction, an autograph, travel plans. So here are the, the big keys to keep in mind when you think about interpreting a letter. The first is that letters were authoritative substitutes for personal presence. So as the church began to grow and spread out from Jerusalem, it became impossible for the apostles to travel around to all the different churches and meet with them face to face to discuss their theological and practical issues. So letters became crucial for the apostles to communicate theological and practical counsel from a distance. So they became a substitute for the author's presence and an authoritative one for the churches. And these letters were often designed to be read out loud to the church, and often they would read them over and over again. And sometimes they would exchange them with other churches. So that's the first thing, that these were authoritative substitutes for personal presence and the second is that letters were situational so each new testament letter was written to a specific group of people to address specific problems or situations that the group of people was facing and they were often these letters were often written in response to needs or problems that came up within the the churches so the contents of the letters were usually uh, usually revolved around these problems or situations that existed in the context that the author was sending his letter to. So here's what you have to keep in mind as you interpret the letters, that no single letter taken by itself can stand as a holistic theological treatise, right? That was never uh, the author's intention to explain everything about his theology in a specific letter. His His intent in writing a letter was to address specific issues that he had been made aware of in a church. So when it comes to interpretation, that means we have to be cautious not to make absolute conclusions on doctrine or practice based upon what one guy said in a single letter, because that was never his intent, right? That's, that's where people get into trouble with, they say, well, James said, you know, faith without works is dead, and Paul said that, you know, Faith is apart from works. How do we, how do, we do that? Well, it's part, of, part of that is understanding the situation they were writing their letters to. I'm going to wrap it up there. We'll just call that good. Those are the, the key things to know about New Testament letters. Um, I have one of these for 1 John 2, 18 through 25, where I've put the text down, I've put the important information from a commentary on the back. This is optional. If you would like to go through that sometime in the next week, just as another chance to practice, uh, you can let me know and I'll get you one of those. We just don't have time to do it. So you've got the key principles for interpreting the letters. If you want more work, you want to practice with the letter, let me know and I can get you a digital copy of that so you can work through it this week. Okay. So I'll open, oh, let me show you a couple books. This book, also a hefty one. It's called Stories with Intent, A Comprehensive Guide to the Parables of Jesus, a guy named Klein Snodgrass, Read it, wrote it, read it, wrote it. Uh, very thorough. I don't think you'll probably find anything better on the parables 
of Jesus. So, I mean, this could be like a, you could say for the next six months, I'm just going to study Jesus's parables. Buy this book. I think it'd be really rich for you. Or you can just come look at it if you like to look at books. Um, and then I'll show you this one. This is the one Terry mentioned this morning. It's called Scribes in Scripture. Aaron Lewis told me about it. If you have more questions about the transmission and translation process that we talked about last week, this book will probably answer the questions that you have. Um, it's very readable. These guys are really smart, but they do a great job of writing, so just normal lay people in the church can understand. So if you want to learn more about transmission and translation, I would pick up a copy of this book. It's a pretty easy read. So, Okay, I'll open it up to questions. And as I always say with questions, you can ask anything you want, but I may not be able to answer it. That's okay.